0: 1 Corinthians 12. This message is um, an introduction, we might say, to our next topic. Last week we spoke in the Sunday morning service on the topic of communion, and we had mentioned that this was one of two particular errors in the church that Paul was going to speak on in regard to, to spiritual observances. The first uh, was last week, we spoke of communion and how they were doing it wrong. They had entered into the observance of the Lord's Supper in a manner that was inappropriate, in a manner that really was um, was not respectful, was not regarding the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in a real and appropriate way. And Paul warned against that. He corrected the error. He told them what was wrong. He told them how they could make it right. And he warned them that if they did not judge themselves, that they would be judged by God. That God would chasten his children for the way in which they were observing communion. We talked about that. But I mentioned that there was a second major issue in the church, as far as spiritually speaking. Paul's been correcting sins for for several chapters now. But the other major issue is the way in which they approached spiritual gifts. They were not using spiritual gifts. They were not exercising spiritual gifts properly in the church. Now, spiritual gifts is a very controversial topic today. In fact, I would say that it is one of the most controversial and divisive issues in contemporary Christianity. There are several rifts in the church today, aren't there? And we've seen several of them come up over the course of the past few weeks. There's a rift happening in the established church right now over morality. Of course, those who are um, born-again believers who believe the word of God, that's not a rift at all. That's that's not a controversy. Um, the sodomite agenda, abortion, these things are not a controversy to those who are true believers. But then there are those controversies that are actually within the church. We would recognize people on both sides of the issue that have some degree of understanding of the Word of God. We would not inherently say everybody on one side of the issue, well, those are unbelievers and these are believers. We we can't say that. And one of those issues is particularly dealing with the spiritual gifts that we call sign gifts. The debate centers... Upon whether or not we believe that the various sign gifts mentioned in scripture, these are things such as prophetic vision, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, are still at work in the church today. Those that subscribe to the fact that, or to the position that sign gifts still do function in the church today are called charismatics, oftentimes. And those who do not believe signed gifts are still valid are often called cessationalists. In other words, that these certain, this certain subset of spiritual gifts has ceased in the church. Legacy Baptist Church makes no apology in our assertion that we are cessationalists. That we do not believe the signed gifts are still valid for the church. Today, now, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody under the sound of my voice believes that, but that is what your pastor and Legacy Baptist Church asserts, and I believe that we have the Word of God on our side. However, I did not want to step into 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 without clarifying our position, and here's why. I'm gonna be teaching, and as I teach through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, some of these sign gifts, we'll call them, are going to come up. They're going to be mentioned. And I certainly could, in the middle of my teaching on those particular areas, uh go off on kind of a rabbit trail on why we don't believe that those gifts are valid. But in doing so, you lose the flow of thought. It's first Corinthians twelve through fourteen is not teaching about why sign gifts are invalid for today. And so for me to insert that into the flow of thought as we're teaching through 1 Corinthians 12-14 through would be to break up the teaching with a side light, and, and I just don't want to do that. So I'm going to get it all out of the way today. I'm going to teach you what we believe the Bible says about sign gifts and why we do not believe that sign gifts are still valid for the church. And I'm just going to give it all to you today. And then over the next several weeks, I'm going to teach through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 with the assumption that you understand my teaching and that you're on the same page with me at least understanding that we are not saying that the sign gifts are valid as I teach through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. So we'll lay a foundation, then we'll build upon that foundation the teaching that we'll um, see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And let me explain to you why this is such an issue. You say, Pastor, why is it such an issue? I've had this come up several times in various aspects of church disagreements, whether it's um, disagreements o- over salvation or disagreements over um, the charismatic movement or whatever it is. They say, well, why does it even matter? We're all Christians, right? So why does it even matter? Well, if these charismatic gifts are not valid, if these signed gifts are not valid, Then all of those who claim to have them are either, one, faking those gifts, two, greatly deceived, or three, being empowered to do these things by something other than God and his spirit. So basically, if the charismatic gifts are not valid, then all those who profess to have them in the church are either, like I said, strongly deceived, open liars, or under the influence of demons. And that's a very serious charge for a person to levy against another believer. Any of those are. Strong deception, open liar, under the control of demons. All of those are very strong, are they not? Well, if the charismatic gifts are valid, then all of those who don't have them or who don't exercise them and who don't believe in them, number one, they are rejecting a portion of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Number two... They have, have um excuse me, they are only either, either they're unbelievers or they're only manifesting the non-charismatic gifts, which means there's a great imbalance in the church. There's an entire portion of the church that is not making it into our churches if the gifts are valid and yet we are rejecting them. But the question is then, well, when people get saved in these non-charismatic churches or they say they get saved. Why do none of them begin to manifest sign gifts? What's going on? So, so either way, there's something wrong in the church. Someone's wrong. Someone's right. And that is a big deal. There are over a billion professing charismatics in the world today. It's a very large number. They come from every denomination. They come from Catholicism. What's going on, and why is it that Legacy Baptist Church disagrees with over a billion people as it pertains to their understanding of the Word of God? Well, either way, it's difficult. Someone's wrong biblically, someone lacks discernment, and it's quite possible that one of these two groups is dominated by unbelievers. So today we're we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 12, but we're also going to go some other places. And then we'll use our overall understanding of sign gifts to inform our understanding of 1 Corinthians 12-14. through And I'm confident that what you will find is this. In light of Scripture, there is nothing, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through which is one of the great passages of Scripture for the charismatics that they cling to, there's nothing that demands... The sign gifts be relevant today as we seek to employ a literal, grammatical, historical, biblical understanding, contextual understanding of the Word of God. And I trust that you will find that as well. So we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 through 11 and notice what those verses say. As Paul teaches and he speaks of these gifts, he says this. I'll begin in verse 8 for context. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. We see in this passage many spiritual gifts which we would call Charismatic. We might define the charismatic gifts as those manifestations of the Holy Spirit in a man by which the bearer is able to do superhuman or unnatural things in this world. Let me repeat that. Charismatic gifts as those manifestations of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, of the Holy Spirit's power in a man by which the bearer is able to do superhuman or unnatural things in this world. Now, in this particular passage, there are five of these listed. Healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now, we know that every spiritual gift is supernatural in a way. When a man gets up and he expounds upon the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit convicts the hearts of the hearers, there's clearly something supernatural going on, right? The conviction of the Holy Spirit is without a doubt supernatural. When a woman is compelled by the Spirit to say the right words at the right time to encourage the hearts of God's people, to encourage a believer, there's clearly something supernatural going on as the heart of God's people is encouraged by the words of a believer. When a child is led by the Holy Ghost to take all of his allowance or all of the money he's earned and to give it to that church, to give it to the needs of that evangelistic effort, that he empties himself of what he has in order to give it to the Lord. There's clearly something supernatural going on. That's not normal. That's not normal behavior. The Lord is doing something. But when we speak of the charismatic gifts, of referring to them as well as sign gifts, they are those supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are not simply spiritual applications, or not simply spiritual manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the scope of pre-existing human capabilities, but rather they are divine manifestations of superhuman capabilities expressed through human instruments. And we know very clearly in the Bible that these gifts have happened. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the book of Acts. It's very clear that these sign gifts were, at least at some point, Active, working, and even a important part of God's plan. In the church today, though, is God granting people the ability to do things outside of this regular human capacity? Is God enabling, directing, or heightening abilities through the natural reign of human cap- range of human capability, or is He actually giving people these superhuman Abilities. Are Christians walking around with the capacity to miraculously heal? Are Christians walking around with the capacity to tell the future? These are questions we face, and the reason we face them are manifold. We face them because we can say these things don't happen, but what happens when men who are otherwise godly say they do? We face them because people crave the miraculous. They crave the supernatural as a strong means of substantiating their faith or their spirituality. And we face these issues because the scriptures leave enough ambiguity for these issues to fall prey to bad interpretation or to the manipulation of false teachers. So as we consider the issue of sign gifts today, we're going to discuss three reasons why sign gifts, uh, or perhaps we might even say the charismatic movement as a whole is uh, not biblical, are invalid for the church today. Three reasons why sign gifts and the charismatic movement are invalid in the church today. Number one, the first reason we'll look at is the biblical purpose for sign gifts is no longer necessary. The biblical purpose, For sign gifts is no longer necessary. The first place where we read about the importance of sign gifts in God's program, not just prophets using them uh, to substantiate their prophecy, uh, but the the literal importance of sign gifts as a marker in God's program is in Joel 2.28. And Joel 2.28 tells us this. And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. The prophet Joel is speaking to the nation of Israel in these verses, specifically of the time in their history that, it, that we know as the last days, which the scripture state will culminate with the regathering of Israel and the salvation of the nation from their sin and from their enemies. As a sign of this time, as a sign of these last days in Israel's history, God promised through the prophet Joel that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon all flesh, that the sons and the daughters of Israel would prophesy, and that their old men and young men would dream dream, dreams and see visions. One of the big differences in interpretation between charismatics and non-charismatics is rooted in our system of interpretation and how we employ that system. Cessationalists, and not all cessationalists, but by and large cessationalists, see a very clear difference between national Israel and the church. Many charismatics do not recognize this distinction. They believe that the church is Israel or that there's a tremendous overlapping between the church and Israel. When we read this verse in Joel 2.28, what we see are some very clear distinctions. Number one, we see that God is speaking to national Israel about their restoration in the last days. Number two, we see that God is declaring his spirit will be poured out not just on the nation, but on all flesh. So God is doing something in the last days, inaugurating the last days so that Israel could know those are the last days. Number two, he's pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And number three, that he says, your sons, who's he speaking to here? Who are your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men? Israel, right? He's writing to Israel. He's writing about the, the signs of the last days for Israel. Israel, your young men. Your sons, your daughters, your old men, they'll prophesy, they'll dream dreams, they'll speak in other tongues. So when we read this verse, we see promises by God to Israel of what to expect in the last days, that Israel will know the times in which they live by the signs which they see. Now, this verse comes up again in Scripture. It's quoted, in fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This is just after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the 120 Jews in the upper room and their subsequent speaking in tongues. In response to these amazing events, all the people in Jerusalem see this group of 120 speaking in tongues. They hear, the the people are speaking and they're hearing it in their own language, even though their language is not the language they're speaking. And they say, what is this going on? And they're confused. Turn with me please to Acts chapter 2. we'll get a context on exactly what's happening when the prophet Joel is quoted and it will help us understand the purpose of the gift of tongues. Verse 5 says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying unto one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya and about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful words of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking, saying, These men are full of new wine, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. And it continues to give the gospel to the Jews. These signs were cited by Peter, according to verse 17, as signs to Israel of the coming of the last days. He says this is what Joel said, that in the last days this was going to happen. Well, guess what, Israel? You're in the last days. And that was supposed to stir Israel unto understanding. Because Joel had told them this was coming, Joel had told them that the last days would come, and in the last days there are many promises in the prophets as to what those would mean for Israel. And notice Peter continues quoting Joel. He doesn't just give, uh, Joel 2.28. He continues all the way through verse 32. He speaks of blood and fire, vapor, of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Is there any record of those events happening on the day of Pentecost? Absolutely not. That's because those events haven't happened yet. They're signs of the, tri- in the tribulation. Signs that have not yet taken place. In fact, the sun darkening and the moon turning to blood is an event that is recorded in scripture as taking place during the seven years of tribulation, specifically as the angel opens the sixth seal of judgment. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 says this, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And so, Peter is quoting a prophecy saying today is the fulfillment of that prophecy. A prophecy that actually is yet to be entirely fulfilled. What's going on there? Well, what's going on is something that happens quite often in prophecy. A prophet sees the future sort of like we look at a landscape from a mountaintop. If you've ever stood upon a mountain, there's not a lot of those up here, but if you've ever been out west, perhaps, or if you've ever been uh, out east to the Appalachians or wherever, if you've ever stood upon a mountain and looked at the horizon before you, looked at the other mountains, you see every peak. But you have no idea what's between those peaks. You don't see any of the valleys. You don't see any of the streams or the towns or the roads. You simply see the peaks. So it is often... With the prophets, God showed them events, but he didn't reveal to them everything that happened between all of the events. They saw the highlights, but they didn't see the valleys that were between them. They didn't even see how much time there was. So as the prophet looks, he sees the events, the major events in Israel's history, but what God didn't reveal to him is what might be happening between those events. So Joel saw a prophecy of the last days before God would come. Before God would regather his nation and save his people. But what he didn't see, because God didn't reveal it, is that there is at least 2,000 years between when the Spirit was poured out initially and the wonders in heaven and the signs and the moon being... Uh, turned to blood and the sun into darkness. And that period that he didn't see, the valley between the two mountain peaks, is what we call the church age. The scriptures tell us that the church age is a mystery. That it was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. That they had no idea it was going to be there. That even up till the time that it began, at Pentecost, There was really no firm understanding of what God was going to do. That that the Gentiles would come in, that Israel would be set on pause, put on pause, set aside for a time. They will be restored. But that there will be a period for the Gentiles called the church. No prophet was, was told that. And so as Joel looked at the last days of Israel's history, he saw the inauguration. The beginning of the signs and the wonders uh, with the prophesying and the speaking in tongues. And he saw the end. The sun and the moon. The sun being blackened and the moon turning to blood. But what he was not made to be aware of was the age in between. And this is what I'm trying to show you this morning. First, that Joel absolutely saw in one prophecy events both from the beginning of the church age, the end of the time of Israel, the end of their God using them, and then the restoration, the end of the church age, and the recommencing of Israel's program. He saw it in one prophecy that spanned from Pentecost all the way to the tribulation. Second, events pertaining to the tribulation are exclusively directed toward national Israel. The church will have already been taken out of the picture. The tribulation is not for the church. It's for Israel to be chastened back to God. It's for the wicked to be judged. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Third, that if the second part of the promise, the part about the moon and the sun and the darkness and the blood, If the second part of the promise pertains exclusively to Israel and God's dealings with Israel as we believe, then there is no interpretive reason to assume that the first part of the promise, the sign gifts, is not meant to be exclusively for Israel as well. Joel presents this prophecy as being for Israel. There's no part of this that is presented as being for the church. The sign gifts were intended by God to be a divine marker in Israel's history that the last days were upon them and that they had better get themselves in order because Messiah was coming, that they were going to be accountable to him. What no one anticipated, not even the early church, was how much time there would be between the start of the last days at Pentecost and the culmination of the last days. With the seven years of tribulation, nobody anticipated that it would be two thousand years. As a matter of fact, if you had talked to someone a hundred years ago, they they said they would not have anticipated it, the church making it to the millennium. If you talk to me, I don't anticipate the church making it after my past my lifetime. If it does, you talk to my children, they won't anticipate the church making it past their lifetime. That's the imminency of Jesus Christ. He could come at any time, and the way the world's going, it just feels like he's gone He's coming. coming soon. Now consider the divine wisdom of God's plan here. God made a promise to Israel that they would know redemption was near when they saw these signs. Following Pentecost, the Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah would scatter all around the world proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah and also performing these sign gifts as spoken by the prophet Joel. So as the Spirit of God pours out upon all flesh, the Jews recognize the accuracy of Joel's prophecy and the advent of the last days. See, the the sign gifts had to come with Gentile salvation because they were part and partial to that Jewish prophecy in Joel. As the Israel saw the church being made of Gentiles and Jews, and at the same time seeing men in the church speaking in tongues, It would show them that this prophecy was true, that it was happening, that these were the last days, but it would also place God's stamp of approval upon the church. That Israel, the church, is the way in which God's going to fulfill His program from here on out. That Israel, the church, is from God. The church is of God. That Jesus is of God. Because these people in the church follow Messiah. So, the the sign gifts coupled with the reality of the church expanding beyond Jews to Gentiles, is God's stamp of approval and God's way of showing the Jews that it's the last days and that the church is a part of his program. As we read the book of Acts, we find already that many Jews had a very difficult time with the concept of Gentile salvation. And with the concept of the Jews being made, or the church being made of both Jews and Gentiles, by initiating Joel's prophecy at the beginning of the last days, even though the end part of the prophecy would not be fulfilled for a little while, God helped the Jews transition into this new dispensation and simultaneously testified of the truth that Jesus Christ was Messiah. I hope that made sense. The first reason then why sign gifts are invalid for the church today is because the biblical purpose of sign gifts is no longer necessary. If sign gifts were in fact number one to initiate the last days and call the Jews into their Messiah and number two to help validate Gentile salvation and the advent of the church then what possible spiritual benefit could sign gifts have today? What possible spiritual benefit would sign gifts have? What possible use would they have Both of those purposes are finished now. The Jews had been testified that the last days had begun. It's already been testified to them. Second, Gentile salvation has already been validated as the church has been active in this world for thousands of years now. We now have God's completed revelation. The word of God which teaches us that the church is of God that Gentiles and Jews are both a part of it, that God has not forsaken his people, that Jesus Christ is coming again to gather and redeem Israel, and that all of this will happen, culminating in the seven years of tribulation following the rapture of the church out of this world. And if all of this is divinely recorded and infallibly preserved for every generation, to what purpose then are the sign gifts throughout the course of this age? And let me be clear here. Sign gifts were never performed in scripture as a validation of personal salvation ever. Sign gifts were never performed in scripture as a validation of one's personal spirituality. Sign gifts in scripture were used by God to validate his program, the transition from working through national Israel through uh, to working through the spiritual Israel, the church. We see miracles done by the apostles as proof of the apostolic authority, as proof of their message. We see speaking in tongues mentioned specifically only four times outside of Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians. In Acts 2, when the Spirit is poured out upon the Jews to validate that the Jews were welcome in the church. Implicitly in Acts 8, when the Spirit is poured out upon the Samaritans to validate that the Samaritans were welcome in the church. In Acts 10 when the Spirit is poured out upon the Gentiles to validate that the Gentiles were welcome into the church, and then finally in Acts 19, when a group of disciples of John the Baptist who, after receiving the Gospel of Jesus Christ, speak in tongues and prophesy. That's it, folks. The only other time tongues is mentioned in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 12 through14 as Paul is correcting the church because they're doing it wrong. And this brings us to our second reason this morning of our three. The first reason, the biblical purpose for sign gifts is no longer necessary. Reason number two, the modern application of signed gifts is unbiblical. So even if you could get over, interpretively get over, the fact that these sign gifts aren't really necessary anymore. If you said, well, I don't quite believe that, I'll, I'll interpret things differently, fine. I don't agree with you, but fine. But if you look at how mod, the modern charismatic movement is applying these sign gifts, it's absolutely unbiblical. As we get deeper into our study of 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, what we will find is that Paul did not prohibit speaking of tongues in the church. This does not necessarily contradict what we've observed. In the book of Acts, we see that there was a very large Jewish population in Corinth. It would not be interpretively a problem for us to recognize that speaking in tongues was happening in the church as a further testimony to the Jewish believers that there was a change in program going on and that God was going to be speaking and using now the church instead of national Israel. But what we also see in these chapters is that they were doing it wrong. They were exalting those who had been blessed with God with these signed gifts above those who had been blessed with other gifts they were using sign gifts as a divine mark of spiritual blessing and a divine mark of spiritual power, so that those who had been blessed with these sign gifts were considered, or perhaps considered themselves, more godly than those who didn't have them. In doing these things, the church was using the sign gifts These gifts, which were intended to be a testimony to the Jews of the dramatic change in God's divine operation from using national Israel to using the church, they were using these gifts as some sort of point of division. Whereas if you've got these gifts, you're spiritual. If you don't have these gifts, you're not spiritual. If you've got these gifts, you're something special. If you don't have these gifts, then you're not And if any of these descriptions sound familiar, really it should, this is exactly what the charismatic movement has done today. So even if we were to ignore all the biblical evidence that God is no longer using these signed gifts, we certainly could not have confidence in the claims of the charismatic movement as it operates today because we know that they're not accurately representing what the charismatic gifts are all about. For many, they believe that if you've never had a charismatic manifestation, then you do not have the Spirit of God. You're not a believer. Others believe that it is only at the height of your spiritual potency that you manifest these particular gifts. None of that is taught in Scripture. As a matter of fact, that's the exact thing that Paul was rebuking them for in 1 Corinthians that you are using these gifts as some sort of marker of spirituality, as some sort of means of of ranking yourself spiritually. Paul rebuked them for it. And yet, that is by and large the message of the charismatic movement today. Consider with me the unbiblical nature of the charismatic movement in three points. Number one, we recognize in Scripture that tongues were a known language. They were never gibberish. Tongues were intended to convince unbelieving Jews. Modern sign gifts, as you see the televangelists and charismatics, tend to be focused in three areas. Tongues, prophetic vision, and healings. In response to these, I present how the modern charismatic movement violates the biblical boundaries of each of these gifts. Today, tongues is seen in the charismatic church to be what we would call ecstatic speech, or what they call angelic speech. In the heat of some passion, a person begins to babble incoherently, at which point they realize they are speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is often correlated in the charismatic movement to the Holy Spirit falling upon men either for salvation or for what they call a second blessing, a heightened state of spiritual ecstasy or potency. However, the first example of spirit empowerment through tongues, found in Acts chapter 2, we read already. And what we read as we saw this in Acts 2 is that these men and women spake, as they spoke in tongues, they spoke in a language that everyone could understand. Known languages. They spoke in their language, people heard them in each person's individual language. The point of tongues was not about what was coming out of their mouths, it was about what was heard point of tongues was that they were speaking and people heard it, everyone in their own language. And what was heard was natural human language. Throughout the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, we never see a redefinition of the the gift of tongues to mean gibberish, to mean Babylon, to mean something incoherent. We never see a redefinition. And so if if the first definition is known language, and there's no redefinition in the Bible... Then why are we redefining? Where is our biblical justification to redefine tongues to be something like gibberish when the scriptures manifest it to be a known language? There's just no precedent for it. In fact, the only hint we have in scripture regarding what tongues is, is that whatever was being spoken was being heard and understood. And second, I mentioned to you in that point that tongues is intended for unbelievers. As you look at the modern application of the charismatic movement today, tongues is a manifestation of your spirituality to the church. Or it is a means by which you are to edify the body of Christ, right? Anyone that that says they're doing it properly, they're doing it. They're doing it in localized groups. They have interpreters. They're doing it uh, for their own benefit at home. Whatever they say... Whatever it is, it's a spiritual exercise for them, is it not? But notice what First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22 says. Paul, teaching, correcting them about their understanding of tongues, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, he says, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not but prophesying serveth not for them that believe, not but for them which believe. The purpose of tongues, ladies and gentlemen, is not to prove your spirituality to believers. It is not to edify yourself or the church. The purpose of tongues is as a sign to unbelieving Jews. That's what the Bible says. That is the purpose as presented in the word of God. It's a sign to them that believe not. And as we look at the prophecy that Paul is quoting here, we find it is Isaiah twenty eight eleven, which says, with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. What people? The Jews. Israel. It is a sign not to those that believe, but to those that believe not. And which ones that believe not? The unbelieving Jews. That is the purpose of tongue. So I ask you, how is the modern charismatic movement doing at fulfilling the biblical requirements of the purpose of tongues? Are they speaking in a known language? No. Are they ministering to unbelieving Jews? Rarely, if at all. They're using tongues as a divine sign of salvation or of a spiritual blessing, both uses of which are absolutely foreign to scripture. Therefore, even if the sign gifts were still biblically acceptable interpretively, the manner in which the charismatic movement is carrying out these gifts is unbiblical and therefore absolutely cannot be sourced in the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot have the Holy Spirit of God compelling something that's anti-biblical. It doesn't work. So number one, tongues were a known language, never gibberish, intended for unbelieving Jews. Number two, completed revelation denies the need for prophetic vision. As we think about the prophetic vision that many of these charismatics claim to have, completed revelation denies the need for that. When we speak of prophecy, there's two concepts of prophecy in scripture. There's one that's still valid. There's one that is not. There is forth telling. This is where a man gets up and declares the revealed word of God. This is by and large the majority of the prophet's ministry throughout time. They were supposed to stand up and they were supposed to declare what God has already said. Then he used foretelling, telling of the future as a validation of his message. It was very rare, even among God's prophets, for there to be foretellers, those that told the future. It's also very rare in the New Testament to see this, with only a handful of men having been given the privilege of telling the future. Outside of the apostles, which God used to write the New Testament, we see no other mentions of foretelling prophecy outside of the book of Acts. And I say that because, as it should be evident by now, the book of Acts is very unique in Scripture. It's a transition time from God's former program with the Jews to God's new program with the church. It should never be used to establish anything as pertaining to the functioning and the purpose of the church today because it was such uniquely transit, transitionary period. Many things were changing, and the book of Acts is intended to catalog that change, not become a user manual for the church. Jude verse 3 tells us that the faith was once delivered to the church. That word in the Greek literally meaning once for all delivered to the saints. With the passing of the New Testament church, and the Christ ordained apostles, divine revelation also ceased. Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four tells us this. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter tells us, That we have been given exceeding great and precious promises. He goes on to tell us that he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness in his word. Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 tell us this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works that the Scriptures, as they have been inspired, are sufficient for us for everything that we need for this life. Everything that we need to be able to serve God and be prepared for His coming has been given to us in Scripture. If that's the case, then why would we need further prophecy? If we have completed revelation, if this is the completed Word of God, then do we really have men and women adding authoritatively words to God's canon? People that are saying things that are authoritatively, that they can stand on as, as the very words of God to man for today? Now, charismatics would deny that their prophetic revelations are an attempt to add to Scripture. But is that not what modern prophecy seeks to do? Seeks to establish that God is still speaking in a definitive way today? New revelation, whether dreams or visions, if legitimate, must be considered binding if they are divine revelation. Furthermore, I challenge you to find one self-proclaimed modern foretelling prophet who has been 100% accurate. Because the first time they fail in their accuracy of their prophecy, you can rest assured that God is not speaking through them. The very first time they get anything wrong in their prophetic revelations, you can rest assured they are in error. That God is not the one that's speaking through them. And so if something is speaking through them, it's not of God. And that should concern you. It should concern them. The third and final reason why the modern sign gifts are unbiblical in nature. First, tongues were a known language, never gibberish, and were intended to convince unbelieving Jews. Second, completed revelation denies the need for prophetic vision. Third, as we um, speak of these sign gifts, the use of sign gifts never contradicted the principles of Scripture. The use of sign gifts, as we see them in the Bible, never contradicted the principles of Scripture. Our third point is that many modern day manifestations of the sign gifts function in direct contradiction to the character of God. Charismatic televangelists are making money hand over fist as they prey upon the ignorance of well-meaning people. There are men in the new charismatic field. A man like Mark Driscoll who is the pastor of a church on the West Coast, called Mars Hill, who claimed in 2008, as he taught on spiritual warfare, that God showed him visions of people in the midst of extramarital affairs, in the midst of child rape, that God actually showed him these lewd acts, and he described in detail these lewd acts that they were committing. Literally, this man says to these people he's counseling, I have seen your past. I have seen what happened to you. God." And this is how he described it. It's like it's a television in front of me. I'm watching it happen. God is really displaying pornography for this man to watch. That's what God is doing. God is showing the details of an extramarital affair to this man. Because what? Somehow this man can handle it? Somehow God is going to allow naked bodies to pass before this man's eyes? Does God do that? Would God ever do that? I mean, let's just use common sense here. Let's just use the basic, the most basic of biblical principles. Is God going to do that? God's not going to do that. Every time you hear of a faith healer indicted for fraud, every time you hear of a snake handler who dies of a snake bite, Every time you hear of a person speaking gibberish and calling it ecstatic language, whenever you hear of a man who claims that God is showing him what amounts to pornography, you can gain more and more evidence that there's something majorly wrong with the charismatic movement. There's something wrong, folks. Our final point as we get back to these three reasons why sign gifts are invalid. We saw, first of all, biblical purpose of sign gifts is no longer necessary. Number two, the modern application of of biblical sign gifts are are unbiblical. And I gave you those three reasons why. Because tongues are not gibberish. They were a known language and they were directed toward unbelieving Jews. That complete revelation denies the need for prophetic vision. And that the use of sign gifts is never... Um, seen in Scripture to contradict the principles of Scripture. So, our third main point is number three, spiritual priorities. The spiritual priorities of the charismatic movement are in balance. The spiritual priorities of the charismatic movement are in balance. As we walk through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in the weeks to come, what, what will become apparent is that the sign gifts are very, very low on the spiritual priority list in the New Testament church. Paul makes them a very low priority. As we read the New Testament, sign gifts are effectively invisible when compared to other spiritual priorities, such as soul winning, such as preaching the word of God, and discipling God's saints. Now, we all have imbalances. But I submit to you that the charismatic movement is not simply imbalanced. It's literally on its head. They're using the sign gifts for all the wrong purposes. They're using the sign gifts in all the wrong ways. They are allowing their focus upon the gifts to override their focus upon the things that are most essential to the teachings of Jesus Christ and to the very purpose of the church. So as we close today, these three reasons why sign gifts are invalid. The biblical purpose for sign gifts is no longer necessary. The modern application of sign gifts is unbiblical. The spiritual priorities of the charismatic movement are in balance. Today is intended to be the foundation upon which we enter into our study on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. While I will reference many of these points in the weeks to come, I will not spend any time biblically defending them because today is the day I've done that. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to take for granted that you understand what I have said today. And I will preach and teach on the spiritual gifts in light of today's teaching. And it's my prayer that, through careful consideration, not only can we have confidence that we as a non-charismatic body of believers are properly situated on this issue, but also that by God's grace we'll have the confidence to explain to others, particularly to those that do recognize the charismatic gifts and believe they are valid, Why we don't agree with them on their position and how it is that the movement that they are involved with is manifesting various levels of unbiblical manifestations.